0: Hello, listeners. This is Paul Gregory, SVP and Chief People and Culture Officer at Mitel Networks. We're a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. My goal here at Mitel is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness. That's where truly transformative change starts. At Mitel, we love how the lead from the heart podcast is helping leaders realize their full potential to better serve their people, and we're proud to be their sole sponsor you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at Mitel.com forward slash Mark, M A R K.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If you've been listening to our show for a while, you know that we're especially intentional about the guests that we bring you. While well, our goal is to introduce you to people whose work in some meaningful way reinforces the Lead from the Heart philosophy, We also want to enrich your leadership skills and mindset by presenting other extraordinary thinkers from a wide range of disciplines. And with that in mind, I'm very excited to welcome and introduce you to Debbie Millman. Debbie is an author, educator, brand strategist, and chief marketing officer for Sterling Brands, where she has worked with over 200 of the world's largest brands. Fast Company Magazine named her one of the most creative people in business and one of the most influential designers working today she's also the host of the Design Matters podcast, one of the longest running shows of its kind that's been downloaded over 40 million times. As I hope you are, Debbie is fascinated by how very creative people become who they are and how decisions they make over the course of their lives impacts their work. And through her hundreds of interviews over the years, she's discovered virtually none of them has had an easy road to success and has had to overcome some very significant life challenges on their journeys. She has a new book out. It's called Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, which features many of her most interesting interviews. And the luminaries that she's had sit down with her include Brene Brown, Seth Godin, Krista Tippett, Ira Glass, David Byrne, Malcolm Gladwell, Cheryl Strayed, Anne Lamott, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink. You know, after producing 80 episodes of my podcast, I can tell you that I've been fully transformed by all that I've learned from my guests. And I invited Debbie specifically to join us today, full knowing in advance that the wisdom that she's gleaned from all of her five times as many conversations would be invaluable for you to hear. And I'm recording this introduction just after finishing my discussion with Debbie, and all that I can say is for so many reasons, you're in for a real treat. So let's welcome Debbie Millman.
2: Thank you so
1: much. It's so great to be here, Mark. Well, you know, this is going to be a big departure for me. And that has been one of my ambitions in the last, honestly, in the last few months, just trying to change things up, but not for the intent of changing things up, but specifically to change things up in ways that will broaden my audience in ways they didn't see coming. And so I got some sort of a notice relating to your book. And I just like had this intuitive hit that, gotta get her. So that's kind of how this all happened. And your podcast is called Design Matters. And it's featured many of the world's foremost novelists, playwrights, designers, actors, poets, directors, chefs, musicians, photographers, writers, activists, and artists. And I read the whole book. And they're all visionaries in some meaningful way. And so noting that you've had 20, 30 million downloads, which is really in the upper echelon of all podcasts, were you ever surprised along the way to how much interest there would be in hearing these stories? Oh, my gosh, Mark, I'm surprised every single day,
2: (laughs) every single minute of every single day that I'm still doing this 17 years later and that people are interested and. I'm, I'm getting some of the most interesting people to somehow agree to talk with me. So, yeah, it's a constant daily surprise.
1: I mean, I can relate to this just in terms of feeling enriched. Like I knew I was going to be enriched talking to you. And in all of the conversations, I've only done, I think, about 80 episodes so far, but they were life-changing, all of them. There's some insights and knowledge that you just don't expect to get, and you make a connection with people you don't expect to get. So what need in people do you believe you're feeling through this? So, like, what is the attraction?
2: I think that people are interested in understanding some of the struggles and obstacles that their heroes might have encountered on their super successful path. I'm not just interested in talking about all the great things they've done and Mm -hmm. how they've done them, but I'm also really interested in understanding how they found the courage to believe in themselves how they overcame insecurities or self-loathing or doubt, fear, rejection, humiliation, shame, all the things that everybody deals with but not too many super super successful people really talk about unless you're, you know, somebody like Brené Brown who has led the path for so many. So I'm I'm really interested in understanding The decisions that people make to stand up for themselves, to believe in themselves, and to try to create the best possible life with meaning and purpose.
1: You know, you kind of nailed the very next question. that I, The principal question that I wanted to ask you is because and by the way, I've only had a chance to listen to two of your podcasts and one of them was Brene Brown <laughs> And because my work is sort of like, I mean, Brene Brown is Brene Brown. Nevertheless, there are similar ideas floating around. And I thought, you know, I just don't want to be influenced by that. So I've never read any of her books and never heard anything. And I read your interview with her and I had to go back and listen. And, I mean, she is a wonderful person. That, that just totally comes through. And then I heard David Byrne, a totally different person. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Right? And so, but I thought, okay, I'm getting a very good range of all of this, but... In between those two that I got a chance to listen to, one thing that stands out immediately in reading your book, and and specifically the interviews, which is what this book is, is what you just mentioned, that they've all suffered in their lives. Dark childhoods, depression, addiction, profound loss, self-doubt, rejection, self-rejection, rejection by others, failures... And nevertheless, none of these took them down for good. So that would appeal to me to hear that because I think anybody listening this probably thinks, well, I'm always in doubt, I'm always in fear, I'm always wondering whether I'm gonna get caught, you know, found out by my limitations and all the things that we humans do. So take us down this road of what you've learned and how do you explain their resiliency? And yours, by the way, because you didn't have quite the great upbringing either.
2: Well, I think that what I've come to realize is that just about everybody that I've interviewed goes through these experiences. They're not unique. They're not segregated to unsuccessful people. And I think that knowing that creates a a sense of freedom in that this is what is expected. This is just part of the journey. And I have to say the only two people that I can say we're sort of just okay as is when I interviewed them with sort of no more Fs to give. Were Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli, and when I interviewed them both, they were well into their eighties, still mm-hmm. practicing, still with vibrant careers, and it made me realize that you know perhaps that's the big goal is to end up in a place where you feel really comfortable with what you've created with your life in your life, and no longer feel the need to people-please or cater to the masses and are feeling really strong about your own voice. You know, it could be that Massimo and and Milton were in their 80s. It could be that they're, you know, elderly white men that were super successful for a very long time. I don't really know, but in some ways, I don't really care because I think that if they can show that it's possible to have a career where you really do feel proud of what you've done and excited for the future, then then hopefully anybody can.
1: Do you have to get to 80 to find that place? Oh, I don't know. I hope
2: not, but...
1: You know, I'm getting closer. Well, I I meant it rhetorically. I'm not you personally. I think you're already there personally. But, you know, one of the things that I, I thought about when you were describing why people are interested in your podcast is just to have this validation that, hey, I'm not the only one out there struggling. And look at these massive success that people can have through their struggles and working through them. Right. But I'm trying to couch this without disclosing too much here, but I'm part of a group. And they're generally authors and speakers and that kind of a level of person. And we meet regularly on a conference call and we talk. And one of the things that I've noticed is how much doubt there is, even though these people are really well accomplished. And so I just thought I'd ask you what's the tipping point for people? Can somebody listen to a few of your podcasts and have this revelation that, hey, I'm not alone here. Suffering's part of the process and I'm just going to go with that as opposed to fighting it and feeling insecure around it. What is it have you found that really gets people to either accept it or transcend it?
2: Well, one of the things that I teach my students is that we are all creatures that are run by our metabolism. Our metabolism is part of the Reptilian brain, it runs all of our involuntary activity, our eye blinking, our heartbeat, and our digestion. And we tend to regulate ourselves. We self-regulate, looking for equilibrium. And so we very well may feel tremendous sadness, tremendous grief, humiliation, shame, any number of things. But the sort of remarkable thing about the human body and the human psyche is that over time we metabolize things. And so the the notion of time heals all wounds, well, maybe doesn't heal them entirely, but it certainly gives us scar tissue. We tend not to bleed out from our wounds when they're sort of part of the day-to-day life that we ordinarily experience. I'm not talking about extreme violence. So we do have the ability to overcome our rejections, our failures, our disappointments, our insecurities, some self-loathing. If we understand and experience those feelings fully and not try to ward them off. Mm -hmm. When we ward them off, we don't have any closure. We have no ability to metabolize. We just sort of park them somewhere and they end up festering and getting worse as opposed to dissipating over time or diluting over time. So I think that in an effort to avoid pain, we end up burying it, which makes it a hell of a lot worse. If we allow ourselves to go through it, we ultimately are able to recalibrate and get back on our feet again one student I had, I I was asking the class, well, what is the worst that could happen if he failed or were rejected? And he raised his hand and and it was the most sort of poignant response I've ever heard. He said, well, I'm afraid I would die of heartbreak. Mm. And the fact of the matter is we don't die from heartbreak. Heartbreak is, you know, we can metabolize our heartbreak, but we can't metabolize as regret. Regret doesn't have any closure. It's always a woulda, coulda, shoulda, And there's scenarios and scenarios that we go over and over and over. And ultimately we can't metabolize regret because there is no experience that we are working through. It's just a potential. And so I I often tell my students, the only thing that you might die with is regret. And that's the part you want to try to avoid.
1: I love that. You're an expert at this. So my question is, Do you need somebody to help you process this, to go through it with you, or can you do it and should you do it on your own?
2: I think it depends on what you think you need. I mean, I don't know that anybody can't benefit from somebody helping them understand the sort of neural pathways in their brain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you can afford it and have the ability to spend the time doing that, I highly, highly recommend it. I mean, it saved my life. Therapy saved my life. But that, you know, that's me and everybody's different and has different ways of coping. I found it impossible to cope on my own and really benefited from professional help. I highly recommend it if somebody has the ability and can handle it financially, although there are lots and lots of different ways in which you can get very inexpensive or even free help. I would suggest that people Google free mental health services and see what they come up with in their area.
1: Wow. That's actually something I hadn't heard before. So, and in this environment, that's really helpful. Tell me about someone whose triumphs over adversity that you spoke to that really inspired you.
2: Oh my goodness. I would say that just about everybody (laughs) has gone over some type of adversity. Certainly my wife, Roxanne Gay, was traumatized as a child and has not only been able to take some of that trauma and express it in a way that helps other people navigate through their own traumas her talent and her ability has helped her overcome those traumas in really unique ways but i would have to say that there's no artist that i've ever met and when i say artist i mean creative person, somebody that's conjuring up something from nothing, you know, it could be a meal, it could be a song, it could be a play, it could be a design, a book, a piece of music, there's no one that I've ever met, ever, that can make something from nothing that doesn't have some understanding of suffering. And in fact, I think quite a few people feel that it's that suffering that gives them a certain understanding and empathy into the human spirit in a way that otherwise would not be as robust or compelling or truthful. You know, people aren't really all that interested in hearing about success stories unless that person has overcome something. I think that sort of the run-of-the-mill, you know, success out of the gate person is, is not yeah, who
1: wants to hear that story? Yeah, right? uh, yeah.
2: I and mean, who comes away from watching people boast on on Instagram for a half hour ever feeling good about themselves?
1: Yeah, no. And hence your podcast, right? I mean, that's where all the interest is. But, you know, it made me wonder whether or not there's this direct connection between suffering and overachieving. Like, is that the catalyst for creativity? Is that the catalyst for, you know, produce, produce, produce?
2: No, no, I don't think so. I think that if it is the catalyst for produce, 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 then probably people are suffering from, the psychological term, idle aversion, <laughs> where they just are afraid to be still because of what that quietness might conjure up in, in their own psyche about what they're trying to avoid thinking about. So no, I don't think that at all. I think that suffering is a universal experience that everyone has experience with. And I think that when people use it to fuel their art, it is a way in which people can feel understood and seen. But I don't know that it makes it any better, per se, to be distraught when you're expressing feelings of being distraught. In fact, I think perhaps the opposite. I've watched Elizabeth Gilbert talk about how the best state she could be in when she creates is one of being relaxed. And I know when I'm making art, if I'm fighting with whatever medium I'm using, whether it be paint or pencil or a device. If I'm fighting, my work tends to be really tortured. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and So i that's not a good
1: state to be in. How do you get yourself out of that state? So if you find yourself in that state and you want to be creative, even if you're on a deadline or it's self-imposed, you just want to get it done or you want to make progress or you don't want the day to be lost, what are your tools? What's your method for extracting yourself from that?
2: Sometimes it's something as simple as taking a long walk, a brisk walk. That helps a lot. Getting away from the medium and just having an opportunity to sort of freeform as you're walking and thinking. All sorts of things come up that way. For me, that's a really good one. Another is to sleep on it and let it go and watch some television or talk to a friend and then go to sleep and wake up and try again and try to get a good night's sleep. Sometimes it's about having you know a good meal, but I think it's just removing yourself from the environment for a little while to recharge.
1: Have you found any other unexpected common denominators in all these creative people? Are there just some qualities that you find consistently that you may not find in maybe the, the general population or at least not notice as much?
2: I think that there tends to be a really strong work ethic mm. with the people that I've spoken to. There are very few people that I've spoken to that are super young. You know, there are a few, Tabby Gavinson, Chanel Miller. Most of the people that I have interviews with, unless it's specifically a sort of young guns type episode, are with people that have reached a certain place in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I found that that place not only doesn't come easily for most, although it certainly does for some, but it does require incredible dedication Incredible sacrifice, a single-minded belief in what it is you're making, the idea that you're worthy of putting something out into the world that other people are going to pay attention to, which is something I've struggled with my whole life, and and a doggedness, sort of persistence, even in the face of rejections or failures or
1: disappointment. I think it's going to be surprising to just about everybody listening that you have struggled with worthiness because you're out there. You're out there in a lot of different ways, notably the podcast, but in your design career, in your being a professor. So is it just sort of simmering below the surface that no one can see? Or is it really actively interfered with your success?
2: Well, I don't know that it's interfered with my success. It interfered with the type of work I'm known for. And I think that anybody that has followed my journey in any way knows that I didn't come to any real success till what some people would consider later in life, you know, into my 40s. And that the first, you know, really half of my career were really tough lessons in rejection and failure and to a point where there were moments where I considered quitting and giving it all up and trying to do something else. I also came to this particular career, commercial art, at a time when I thought that that was all I could do to support myself and be creative. That this was that sort of the Venn diagram of, of my life at the time was trying to do something that was creative, but also something that would help me support myself because I had very little alternative. And so that spot in the middle was commercial art. It was a struggle accepting that, but ultimately what I've realized is that there is still a weed gene in the decision-making about what you are willing to sacrifice, and I was not willing to sacrifice being able to take care of myself, and so that is something I've, I've only grown to understand, you know, in later life. What does that mean? That it was the most important thing to me at the time, in as much as I might have thought that the most important thing at the time was being creative and living a creative life, If I had to choose one thing that I was needing to do above all else, it was take care of myself. It was be safe and secure. Mm -hmm. And so that required a certain ability to pay my rent. (laughs) And there would be less uncertainty with a full time job making commercial art than struggling month to month to be able to pay my rent and live with that insecurity and live with that unpredictability and what ultimately for me, I think would have been terror if I didn't know how I was going to take care of myself.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So big picture, because this is inherently a leadership podcast. Let me ask you, are there any key leadership lessons that we can learn from all these different artists?
2: I don't know that there's one common denominator. I don't other than maybe working really, really hard, maybe working really, really much harder than anybody that you know. There's nobody that I've interviewed that doesn't really kick ass just all the time. I think that quite a lot of people are fueled by the notion that they have something to say, they have something to contribute, that they have the potential to make a difference with their work. I think other people are provoked by the need to express themselves and hope that that expression touches other people. You know, leadership is messy. I think that people look for a way to codify, a way to say, well, if I take these steps, then I'll be a leader, or I'll be able to manage well. And, you know, ultimately, I'm a big believer in the way in which David Foster Wallace talked about leadership, Mm -hmm. and that leadership is the ability to to be able to be inspired by somebody to get over your own laziness and fear and do something bigger than yourself. I mean, and I'm paraphrasing, he says it much more eloquently, but I'm happy to to find it and share it with you. But it's essentially the notion that a good leader helps us overcome our own laziness and forgetfulness and fear to be able to do something bigger than we might have been able to do on our own. And that's kind of what I try to do as a leader. I don't think there's any one way to lead. I think that while you can be born with some leadership qualities, I think leadership is mostly a a learned skill. And in the same way that there is not one way to lead, there's not one way for somebody to be led. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody is going to respond to the same leadership tactics. So I think it's a matter of really understanding your audience trying to be able to create a sense of mutuality in that leadership. You know, when you're leading people, they're willingly giving over their power to you to let them be guided to someplace hopefully better. You know, leadership is a privilege, but it comes with enormous responsibilities to be accountable to that power.
1: Your language of leadership is messy, sort of connects the dots between what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is all of the obstacles people face and the doubt that they face and your people are messy. And so Mm -hmm. you're dealing with your own messiness and then you're having to contend with whomever is working for you and the issues that they're dealing with. And sometimes it just sort of can blow you up. But if you have the point of view that we're all fighting the hard battle here, and it's okay if I'm struggling, if I'm doubting, or mm-hmm. if I'm fearful of the decision that I'm making. Accepting that is something I saw very few people in my career do, even though you couldn't get up in the morning unless you did. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And people have very different ways of leading. You know, some people are able to lead in a way that changes culture. You know, somebody like Martin Luther King. Some other people can lead with great bravery and terrific speeches like Winston Churchill. Some people have a point of view that they adhere to no matter what. You know, Vince Lombardi, the great football coach, his his point of view was, I never lost a game. And People were like, well, coach, there were a few, you know, occasionally lost a game. <laughs> yeah.
1: Jack Nichols did the same thing. Yeah.
2: But but he said, no, I didn't lose the game. I just ran out of time. And, you know, <laughs> that's an incredible way of thinking about your leadership and the people that you're coaching and leading.
1: I love it. There's a quote in your book from a writer named Tina S. Maker, And she says, I'm fascinated with people who take risks because I put off taking risks for a very long time. I tried to be very safe. And it just wasn't working for me. And I just love that. Mm. How does risk taking fit into achieving uncommon success in your mind?
2: Risk taking is such a difficult, difficult emotional state. You know, we as homo sapiens have a part of our brain that essentially tries to cut us off from risk. That reptilian brain hates being in a position of uncertainty. Hates when we're in a place of insecurity, where we can't predict the future, where we can't see any existing patterns of recognition. And so the reptilian brain essentially wants us to do everything possible to avoid risk and uncertainty so that we have no chance of being hurt, harmed, attacked, etc., But the only way to be able to do something that hasn't been done before is to take the risk in taking that first step into the uncertainty. So there's this inherent conundrum in our humanity, this prehistoric need, desire to be safe, but yet this other part of us who want to be able to create something magical and meaningful and original and new. And that's, I think, part of the just basic human conundrum. How do you do that? And I always thought it was through confidence. You know, if I just have enough confidence, I'm going to be able to do anything until I learned from Danny Shapiro that confidence is really overrated. She said that to me after seeing a stack of confidence books on my desk, (laughs) because I had for decades, you know, thought it was the Holy Grail. And She felt that overly confident people are just kind of obnoxious and I couldn't help but agree with her. But I really still wanted to codify confidence. And ultimately, I thought about it for about a year. And what I've come up with is that, for me, confidence is the successful repetition of any endeavor. And that. she felt that what was much more important than confidence was courage to take that step. So once you take that step, you then have the ability to start experimenting with the success in doing it. But humans very rarely are successful at anything they haven't tried before out of the gate. We can't even walk without falling. We can't talk without garbling. You know, we can't even go to the bathroom without pooping on ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> these are all learned behaviors. And so why we would think that, well, I'm going to now embark upon a path of leadership that because I declare myself a leader or I am appointed a leader, that I have the skills to be a leader without learning how to lead and learning what enough about what you believe in to get people to overcome their laziness and sloppiness and all of the other things that David Foster Wallace was talking about. So I think that the more you experiment with that uncertainty and begin to try to hack into it enough so that you can be able to become uncomfortable with the uncertainty in that endeavor, the more likely you are to ultimately understand what success feels like, what the muscles of that success feels like, and then you can begin to try to replicate that. One of the best examples of hacking into uncertainty was something that I learned by watching Barbara Streisand perform. Years ago, I read an article in the New Yorker about stage fright, and her manager, Barbara Streisand's manager, was talking about how despite all of her extraordinary talent, she still suffered from debilitating stage fright. And that's why for many, many decades, she didn't perform live. Mm-hmm. That when she did a a concert at Central Park, she had forgotten the words to one of her songs and was mortified. And so when she started touring again, I saw both tours, one at Madison Square Garden and then another at Barclays Center. Barclays Center was the most recent. And I went by myself. Mm. Uh, The tickets were super expensive. Nobody wanted to go with me. I went (laughs) by myself. Because I was by myself, I did a lot more observing than I might have done when, when you're with somebody and then chatting and singing and clapping and whatnot. So I was just doing a lot more observing. And at one point, I lifted my head up to the top of the stadium and realized it was a closed in amphitheater, realized that at the very, very top on the ceiling above the lights was a teleprompter. (laughs) All the words to all the songs that she was singing and that she'd been singing for 60 years. You know, I, Mark, I could have gotten up and sang people. (laughs) <laughs> or, or the way we were. <laughs> but, but, yeah, this, this, this right, exactly. but I knew the words. I knew every words every one of those songs. So that's the way she hacked into her uncertainty in an effort to live with the uncertainty as opposed to fight to overcome something that just might be part of the human experience.
1: That's a wonderful story. You know, it was interesting because it was not that long ago. It was actually was long ago, and I think about it, because it was right before COVID. And I was going to New York, actually, to give a speech. And the person that was making all the plans said, would you like a comfort monitor? And I, I really was kind of freaked out because the language is so weird. And I go, well, what's a comfort monitor? And she goes, You know, the screen that shows you where your slides are and what you're going to say next. And then I was like, Oh, so maybe that's how she reframed it. You know, it's just exactly. I got them up there. I actually saw Frank Sinatra sing right before he died. And for some reason, they put him in a ring, like a boxing ring like he sung in the boxing ring. And on every corner, all four corners, there was a teleprompter and we could see them. So if he deviated from the words, (laughs) you kind of felt like, well, wait a minute, you got them right in front of you, but he was being an artist. So it was all very confusing. I'd rather she have it on the ceiling where nobody can see it (laughs) than putting it out right in front of us. Exactly,
2: yeah, absolutely, I agree.
1: More than one of your podcast guests has made this assertion that who we become depends on who we love, and I think more specifically, who we spend the most time with. And so you spend your time with a lot of really wonderful people. I would imagine that this idea resonates for you and with you, but talk about it.
2: Well, I think that that was true pre-COVID, but in these last two years now, I really have not socialized anywhere as near as much as I used to. And in some ways, that's good, and in some ways, that's bad. I think the person who I spend the very most amount of time with is my wife. And that's been a really wonderful gift to have over these last three and a half years now that we've been together. If there was ever a time to have a partner to go through hardship with, it's now.
1: Yeah. Right,
2: but I I I do have a very close knit group of friends that I consider family at this point. You know, they're my chosen family, and while I don't spend nearly enough time with them, the ability to feel close to them is always there. You know, my friend. I have a friend named Susan Milligan. She's a journalist living in Washington, and for most of our adult lives, she's lived in Washington, and I've lived in New York, so we don't see each other all that much, but whenever we do, we pick up like nothing has ever stopped us from connecting. And we've been friends now for 40 years. Mm. So I think that there's an ability to feel somebody close in your heart without necessarily being close in proximity. That's something Mm. I've only learned over time. I used to feel a lot of panic if I didn't see people that somehow... If I wasn't physically connected to them, I wasn't emotionally connected to them or they weren't emotionally connected to me. I didn't feel secure in that connection, but that's changed over time. And I do feel much more secure in that as long as I think we're both, you know, sort of working on the relationship and connecting as often as we can in whichever way we can.
1: How did you stay connected with people? Obviously, she's somebody that you weren't seeing all that frequently because she's you know, 500, 600 miles away from you. Yeah. But people that you would normally see, people you'd go out to dinner with and, you know, coffee and all that kind of stuff, go to theater. You couldn't do that during COVID. What was your strategy for staying connected?
2: Zoom dates. Did you? Yep, Zoom dates, FaceTime has been a blessing, texting. I'm very close with my 14-year-old nephew and pre-COVID and pre-vaccine, you know, we weren't seeing each other very much. You know, my brother was super worried about the kids getting sick. And mm. we had been regularly getting together once every four to six weeks. So suddenly to have months go by where we're not seeing each other, especially at that age when they change so fast, I found that FaceTiming and texting turned into a really lovely way to still be very much a part of their lives. And I have to say that the texting and the FaceTiming has been more frequent than the once every four to six weeks that we saw each other. So rather than Mm -hmm. having that sort of condensed time over a weekend every month, texting every day changes the the whole timbre of the relationship.
1: What's the legacy of COVID going to be for us as a society, do you think?
2: Survival of the fittest at this point. So disgusted by the lack of belief in science and, you know, I know this is not a podcast about politics, but, you know, the idea that we should have bodily freedom and do whatever we want, masked or unmasked, sort of flies in the face of women having reproductive freedom and agency in their own bodies. So the whole thing is really quite, I'm despairing about it all.
1: What about to our psyches? What's the legacy going to be? Are we going to just going to get over this when the coast is clear? Do we just go back to our normal lives or do you see, you know? I I
2: don't know what that means anymore because I think that the variants seem to be smarter than we are. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that we're moving towards an endemic as opposed to a pandemic and learn to live with the virus in the same way we've learned to live with flu. It's terrifying to think that we have an ability to overcome this as a population and as a civilization and are fighting about how to do that when we've seen historically over history how we've overcome things like polio and measles and mumps and rubella and cholera and so forth, even something as recent as Spanish flu. So I don't know and feel quite despairing, as I said, about the way in which we as humans seem to very much get in our own way when trying to advance our condition. What does that mean? That that we're having fights about whether or not people should wear masks or be vaccinated or take care of each other in a way that is not just about their own selfish personal needs and beliefs. And we've politicized mask wearing is insanity.
1: But it's only a example of what I think is sort of this breakdown of, you know, a civil society where we, in the past, it seems to me that when we had a crisis that we came together. And that we're tolerant with one another and looked out for one another and, you know, sort of saw one another as going through the same experience that we were. And our behavior has been very, very different, obviously, and more polarized politically. But my interest is in terms of how we bring those Behaviors to our workplaces, like are we going to be less tolerant of people? Are we going to be less tolerant of diversity? Are we going to be less tolerant of voice and a really caring orientation? Or are we just going to say, "Hey, basically, work is transactional. We'll pay you, and you know, if it works out, we'll pay you a little more. If it doesn't work out, then we'll find somebody else, and we go back to that old way." That seems to me a concern because it could easily be influenced by how we're living our personal lives. Does that make any sense?
2: Yeah, yes, very much so. Very much so.
1: So we're in we're in the same boat here in terms of our concerns. What will bring us all together? I used to think it was going to be a crisis, but I don't know. You know, we had one and we kind of botched it.
2: You know, I recently rewatched the movie Arrival with Amy Adams, and I was struck by the notion in the movie that the reason that the aliens come in 12 different ships, rocket ships, and land all over the the world is to unite us in our defense. And it seems to me that uniting us is only possible through fear. And and even that fear isn't universal. So I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I wish that I could be more optimistic and say that you know, the arc of justice or the, the arc of, yeah, I think it's the arc of justice bends towards, or the arc of equality and freedom bend towards justice. I'm not exactly sure of the phrase, but I don't know. I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish, but I also don't want to, and I can say this, but no one else can, be a Debbie Downer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well. <laughs> what of your guests taught you about love and compassion and kindness. I'm trying to elevate your optimism here.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that what I've learned is that you, and this is going to sound so cliche. Oh my God, I can't believe me to say this, but I think you really have to try to love who you are as is before you can accept somebody else loving you as you are as is. Because otherwise you're constantly in a performative state. You're constantly insecure that if you aren't being who you are, that you are going to get found out and suddenly that love will go away. So I think what I've learned from my interviews with people is that the only way to be truly loved is to first and foremost love who you are. That doesn't mean you have to love yourself fully or unconditionally, but I think it means you need to love yourself a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you don't go into ego and arrogance with your self-love, right? But I think that's a struggle for a lot of people. Yeah. And if you're not there in a leadership role, it's going to be a really hard job for you to love other people and to care about them, right? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And if you don't feel entitled to be a leader, you're not going to be a good leader. So I think you have to feel entitled to be loved in order to be really good at loving others. You know just because somebody tells you that you're gonna be a leader doesn't mean you're gonna be a good leader. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily gonna believe that you can be a good leader. That doesn't mean that you can't occasionally suffer from imposter syndrome or whatever else. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, an artist needs to believe in their own vision in order to realize great art. And when I say realize, I mean create and make. The same thing goes for being a leader. I think you have to really truly believe that you have the ability to lead people in the most profound and good way in order to achieve the best possible results.
1: Amen, sister. That is a very important insight for this audience. So, and it's come up a few times, but nowhere near enough. It was interesting because when I wrote my book originally about 11 years ago, I was really struggling with it. And I won't go into the reasons for it, but they were all about self-doubt. You're not a writer. Other people have creative abilities. You don't have that. All those, you don't have anything to say. All that voice was not my own, but nevertheless was pervasive and was really shutting me down up against a a true ambition of believing that I had something to say and believing that I was a good writer and that I could do this. But here's this wall I've got to get over. And so on these days where, remember you said, you know, I watch TV or go for a walk, you know, when, when you're sort of stunned and unable to kind of perform, I just thought, well, I'm not going to waste this time. So I started reading and I found this book by one of your guests, interestingly enough, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Oh, Yeah. And she said, as a writer, you need to, her quote, be militantly on your own side. And it was the first time in my life where I realized I've never been that. Mm -hmm. Like, right? I'm the first one. Like, my wife will go, you don't be so self-critical. I go, well, if I'm not, who will be? You know, it's sort of a joke. But, you know, I finally got over that thanks to that insight from her. So I'm really glad that you brought this up. Self-doubt and fears of not being good enough and fears that you're not capable of handling a challenge when it comes up. Most people can do it if they can get to I kind of like myself and I I believe in myself well enough that I'm going to pull this off.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Okay. After over 400 interviews, what's your conclusion about what makes an extraordinary life and career?
2: The desire to want one and the courage to manifest
1: it. So do you think some people just don't want to have an extraordinary life and career? Just sort of like go through life and whatever comes is okay and I don't really have to have any greater ambitions? Is that what you're saying? No,
2: no, I don't think that at all. I think that they are content with what they have. And if they don't want more, then it's very possible that they are okay as is. You know, Seth Godin talks about the difference between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure is something you have to keep getting. You have to keep filling it up. You metabolize, you need more. You metabolize, you need more. Happiness is content with what you have. And if somebody wants something bad enough, then they make every effort to go out and get it. If they don't, then either their fear is bigger than their hope. And that's something that I would really hope that they can see and work on. Or they are really happy with the way that they are.
1: But that doesn't necessarily mean that won't get them to an extraordinary life. Or are you saying that some people I are think
2: that it's some I think it depends on what your definition of an extraordinary life is. I think that there are people that think that some lives are more extraordinary than others based on their own criteria for extraordinary. I think that everyone's definition of an extraordinary life is very personal and very intimate and doesn't need to necessarily compete with other versions of an extraordinary life.
1: I agree to that completely. But to the extent that one wants an extraordinary life, you're saying it must start with desire, deep desire.
2: I think you have to decide that you want one. Absolutely. You have to decide that you want one.
1: Got it. Fast Company named you one of the most creative people in business. How have you learned to cultivate your own creativity? Like, what can you share about? I know this is sort of like a very broad question, but I'm certainly, you have an answer to it. So like what lessons about creativity can you share?
0: Well,
2: I think everybody is born creative. You know, little children love drawing and whether it be on paper or walls or sidewalks or their clothes or whatever it is, we tend to love to get messy and make things. We make things with Legos, we make things with blocks, we make things with seashells. We find almost anything that we can to make something with. It can even be boxes, cardboard boxes, sand. We tend to enjoy the act of making, mm. and something happens in about third grade or so where we start to become more conscious of our own output versus others. So again, talking about that definition of what an extraordinary life is and suddenly as we look at other people's output we sometimes feel insecure that ours isn't as good or somebody else has a better technique and then we self-edit we stop doing it because we don't feel like we're as good as somebody else when in fact what does that have to do with anything it's just part of human nature to compare and contrast and that whole survival of the fittest thing is really deep deeply embedded in the oldest part of our brain. So we stop. And if anybody's interested in reimagining the possibilities for their own creativity, I would look to the work of Linda Barry, also somebody I interviewed in the book, who spends a lot of time with kids and adults to cultivate their freedom in being creative. Kids have it, adults lose it, but it's something that can be reignited. And there's always an opportunity to make something with your creativity again. And so if anybody, again, in the same way, you know, in, in order to strive for a remarkable life, you need to decide you want one. I think the same thing happens with creativity. If you want to be creative, you can be. You don't have to post whatever you've done on Instagram or any of the social networks. You can just keep it for yourself and enjoy the act of making. I've discovered, Mark, that I'm happiest when I'm making something. It could be a podcast. It could be a lesson plan. It could be... A piece of art or a piece of writing or a meal. I enjoy the act of creation and we don't have to share that with everybody all the time. The act of creating can be very private and personal and intimate and beautiful just for the sheer pleasure of doing
1: it. That's so well said. Thank you. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here and we're going to return with the heartbeat round.
0: Hi, Paul from Mytel again. A huge part of developing a supportive corporate culture is communicating to our customers, our employees, and all other stakeholders. At Mitel, our job is to make communication easier, more convenient, more efficient through technology. We're proud to be the sole sponsor of the Lead from the Heart podcast and its message of empathy and caring, not to mention safe, open, and honest communication. Again, if you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at mitel.com forward slash mark, M-A-R
1: debbie i'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the heartbeat round to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life i'm going to ask you a few more personal questions but these require a quick instinctive and brief answer and the truth is is that no one has ever given me a brief and quick instinctive answer so give me whatever you want so are you ready to play yes
2: i'm going to turn off my video so i can close my eyes okay okay cool
1: One way you have learned to make people, i.e. your podcast guests, feel deeply understood and appreciated, as Maria Popova wrote of you.
2: I would say that it comes from really deep research and over-preparation so that they feel seen and respected and understood.
1: The biggest thing you've had to teach yourself? Patience. piece of advice you can offer related to building one's own personal brand?
2: I wouldn't work on developing a personal brand. Brands are manufactured meaning. They do not exist on their own. Hmm. Rather, instead, I would work on developing reputation and character.
1: One book you believe everyone listening should read one day.
2: Love in the Time of Cholera" by Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Hunger by my wife, Roxane Gay. Hmm.
1: Very good. The quality you most admire in other people. Kindness. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true.
2: We're all gonna die. <laughs> Sorry. That's, no,
1: that's that's it's really funny because I had another guest say almost the exact same thing. But I think what her words were were, it was Maria Konnikova, and she said, "We're doomed." <laughs> yeah. Maria yeah. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. All-time favorite guest and why? If you can answer that question.
2: All-time favorite guest, excluding my wife because that's Mm -hmm. not fair, Chris Ware, the cartoonist and graphic novelist. And why? Because he tends to be rather reserved, and I felt that we connected in the most open and genuine way possible, which I think surprised us both.
1: Wow. Humor, fear, or love, the emotional approach to marketing that works best in driving long-term customer behavior.
2: I'm not sure that I would pick any of those things, to be perfectly honest. I think that what drives customer behavior is creating a difference in their lives through your product and really providing the consumer or people with a benefit, with something that they're getting from the experience of engaging with your product, that it's not an internally driven financial gain need from the corporation, but rather something that you're providing to your audience and fans and zealots and consumers.
1: Whether we learn the lesson or not, what do you think the pandemic is here to teach us?
2: How contagious we all are.
1: <laughs> the cultural value every organization should have. Generosity. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Ego. And finally, why does design matter?
2: Hmm. Design matters because design is intention. And everything that we do, everything that we make, every decision that we, that we take is all based on a series of questions that we ask ourselves that are all about how we want to design the future.
1: Thank you for doing this with me. Your insights are really wonderful, and they're very unique, and I'm so glad you came on. My final question is really an opportunity for you to introduce something from your book. And this is, when I say your book, it's really, you know, the embodiment of many of your interviews. But anything that we didn't discuss, anything that you think would be invaluable information for my leadership audience to know. And I guess I'd particularly love to send people off mulling any final thoughts that you might have.
2: Well, I will repeat something that one of my guests said. I have been talking about this a lot because it had such a profound impact on me. So please forgive me if you're hearing this before, if it's in any way redundant for any of your listeners. But I think that one of the most, if not the most profound thing that somebody's said to me on the podcast was something that David Lee Roth said. Mm-hmm. David Lee Roth, the former frontman of the band Van Halen. And I had him on the show when he was just launching a new line of tattoo ink that he had developed. And we were talking about that, of course, and being an entrepreneur. But we were also talking about, of course, you know what it was like to be one of the world's biggest rock stars back in the 80s and 90s. And when 1984 came out, it was a time... Michael Jackson was very famous, David uh, Bowie was very famous, The Police and Van Halen was among the most popular bands on the planet. And they had the number one album, the number one tour, the number one single, the number one video. And I asked David Lee what that felt like. What did it feel like to be like the most popular dude on the planet? And his answer really surprised me, given how much of a gesture he is. Um, He paused, he got a little bit somber, and he said, you have to be really careful when you get to the top of the tallest mountain in existence, because it's always cold, you're often alone, and there's only one direction to journey. And that really has given me so much to think about in relation to my own life, in relation to sort of being, I guess, what would be considered a late bloomer, that it's okay to take small steps up the mountain. And maybe for those that do take the small steps up the mountain, you know, we peak later. (laughs) I need to think that my best work was behind me and hope that if I am going to peak, that it's the day before I die. So I think that there's something to be said for that slow journey up the mountain as leaders and executives and makers and creators.
1: And enjoy the journey, which is yeah, something that, yeah, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, be sure. aware of where you are in the journey and what you're doing. I'm saying this while I'm outside of my body going, well, you're not, you're not like that at all. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm always focused on the doing and less on the enjoying. So we'll pass on that message. That was wonderful. Thank you very, very much. It's been a total joy to have you. I was so looking forward to this. And, Even though you did share a story that I suppose you're sharing on other podcasts, the rest of this was rather unique and original and wonderful. In fact, it all was. So thank you so very, very much.
2: Thank you, Mark. It's really an honor to be here.
1: Best to you, Debbie.
2: Thank you.
1: Before we say goodbye, I want to give you all a very big thank you. We just set a new record for the most downloads of this podcast in one month, and we're so honored by your interest and support. So once again, thank you. I'm very, very grateful. And if you're interested in learning more about Leading from the Heart, my book, Lead from the Heart, cleverly titled, can be found on Amazon and in bookstores everywhere, and it's been taught in nine American universities. Our theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A-Train, written by Billy Stringhorn and performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. And I wanna thank my wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please let me know so I can share the news with them. I now leave you with my two consistent reminders. Number one, when you leave from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley, thanking you for listening and signing off for now.